is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. To answer your, your question you posed to CPAC in Orlando back in February, every single day, we miss you, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much, Brian. I, I miss you, and I miss uh, what we were doing. We were making America great again, and now America, I don't think it's ever been so low. Yeah, I mean, it's sad but true. I mean, it certainly doesn't feel like it, does it? And one of the things I was thinking about even earlier today is holy crap. It's only been 11 months. It's only been 11 months. And when you think about how long we've been living under O'Biden, somehow or another, it just feels longer, doesn't it? Not even a year. And maybe some of that is because if it was your intention, like if you went into the presidency and you said, okay, how is it that I could jack up the United States of America as effectively as possible? Like, if that was your objective, you'd have a really hard time being more effective than our current occupant in the White House. Maybe some of it has to do with just watching the progressive cognitive decline of the president of the United States. And you just feel as though it takes time for that to happen. Although then you think back and go, no, he really just didn't have it when he got there. But nevertheless... Yeah, it feels like it's been a lot longer. It's been one heck of a year. As President Trump said, never been so low. It certainly feels that way. But I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. And with adversity comes opportunity. As Americans, it's what we do. We seize opportunity. We make the most of it. And this is all part of a conversation that I first advanced on this program when I was studying some data, because at my core, I'm an analytics and data guy. And I saw a generational opportunity that's playing out, in part because of the incredible failure at such a rapid rate by the Biden administration. And hey there, obviously not the great one. I'm Brian Mudd, host of The Morning Rush in WJNO, West Palm Beach. And the Brian Mudd Show on WIOD in Miami. Always an honor and a pleasure guesting for the great one and spending some time with you on this particular program. Really enjoyed last night. Have a lot that I want to cover about the opportunity that's in front of us tonight. And also some of what we need to do to play a constructive role over the next year, which is critically important. And not just in the context of winning elections. Yes, winning elections, but winning elections with the right candidates. A lot of what we're going to be talking about. And that, by the way, was a, uh, a clip from my interview with President Trump recently. We'll have some more uh, from that interview throughout the course of the show. You may follow me, by the way, on the uh, social world at Brian Mudd Radio. You may find me on Twitter, on Getter, on Parler. And to reach out, interact with me, ask me some questions. Got a lot of good questions, and I'm actually going to address a couple of them. Uh, from yesterday on tonight's show. And we'll get to your calls in just a bit as well. 
But I want to start here. My top three takeaways today. My first one is that something huge is happening here. Something huge is happening here, all right? So I've researched President Biden's approval rating by state. Again, this was an exercise that I started going back to the week of Thanksgiving. Updated with the most latest research available this morning. Okay, so everything I've got for you will be presented in real time. And on one hand, the results, not terribly surprising to me. Because, yes, his approval rating is underwater in 20 states he won last year. And you hear that number, 20 states that he won. He Joe Biden has a net disapproval rating in right now. I mean, that is pretty remarkable. But then again, when your national approval rating is hovering around 40%, I mean, that's necessarily going to be the case. And that's, that's really bad territory. But when you take a look, beneath the surface and you begin to take a look at what's driving his low approval rating which as has been reported today is now lower than Kamala Harris's approval rating as there's a race to the bottom in the Biden administration here are the only states a little additional perspective on this the only states as of today that Joe Biden maintains a net positive approval rating Okay, they are these. California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, and the land of the burn, Vermont. That's it. Those five. California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, and Vermont. Which, in certain parts of the country, if you're living in one of those states, they might say, Bless your heart. I mean, you'll notice that even states like New York and New Jersey are not on that list. Yeah, I'll get to that in just a bit. Joe Biden has net disapproval in New York and New Jersey now. Which, by the way, when I first started researching on this level the week of Thanksgiving, that wasn't the case. He was still above water in those states. To give you an idea of how things have turned from bad to worse in what has been his catastrophic administration. This doesn't happen, especially in states that he won overwhelmingly in just over a year ago. This doesn't happen unless people are opening their eyes. And that's what's so encouraging here. The biggest eye-opener is where his approval ratings remain worst. And not as in geography. Though, again, with net disapproval ratings in states like New York and even his home state of Delaware... One of the bluest states, might be one of the smallest, but it's one of the bluest, and it's his home state, Delaware. I mean, those are remarkable storylines unto themselves, but the bigger storyline is still demographics, because for as long as I've studied politics, there's been one consistent truism. The youngest voters are those most likely to support Democrats, right? I mean, you know this. Typically, it takes family formation. It takes career development, you know, things like paying taxes, to open the eyes of the previously idealistic kids. And so I've literally never seen anything to the contrary. Not even in a single poll. Not until now. And so this is different. And something huge is happening here. So President Biden's approval ratings are worst youngest. And among voters 18 to 34, his approval rating 
now stands at 29%. That's 29% compared to a 55% disapproval rating. I'm not kidding. So that's the lowest of any age range. And I'm sure there's more than just a single reason for such disapproval by the youngest voters. He has been underwater with them since early June. But you might imagine Biden's vaccine mandate that kicks in a week from today, by the way, plays a meaningful role here. Vaccination rates, lowest, youngest. You got a lot of young families that have concerns about the vaccinations, especially as it pertains to fertility. It stands to reason that those who've not opted to obtain a vaccine for health reasons probably don't take too kindly to being threatened with their careers as they're making their way in the world, trying to start a family. And so this is what ultimately presents generational opportunity, generational opportunity, but for conservatism. And it's the first one that's come about since the era of Reagan. Now, Ronald Reagan is the primary reason that those of us who are the products of the 80s, the the Gen Xers, were generally more conservative than boomers or millennials. You know, it's, hey, we came up under Reagan. This is pretty darn good, especially when you're coming out of the Carter administration in that era. Right. So that's the generational opportunity in front of conservatives in front of the Republican Party right now, if they seize the opportunity. And many comparisons have been made between Biden's performance, Jimmy Carter's performance. Well, the difference here is that it took over three years, over three years for Jimmy Carter to fail anywhere near as badly as Joe Biden currently is. So in context, when you take a look at all this, I mean, the the internals, they're even stronger than they were back then. And you, you think about for those that had perspective on what Jimmy Carter left behind. You got Ronald Reagan coming out of that. And how quickly things turned because we had the right person, the right place, the right time. That kind of leadership. So here we are. That's the generational opportunity for Republicans. It's about emulating Reagan's principles. And starting with freedom and liberty, which is a here and now battle, given that, again, we a week from today could see millions of Americans fired simply because they're not being injected with whatever the government demands they be injected with. So the biggest teachable moment in the here and now, it's not about taxes. It's not about welfare. It's not about free puppies. It's not about free Biden bucks and free goodies that are anything but free. It really is about freedom itself, which is my third takeaway today, because Americans inherently want it, inherently want freedom. And the big lie about the left, the Democrat Party generally, is that they're they're liberal, quote unquote liberal, which is often confused by kids and young adults to equal liberty. And so they've often thought that's the way that, to go because, well, that, you know, I want to be liberal. I want to be open minded, all these things. And it's nothing more than a marketing scam. It's a marketing scam. Yeah, that's why, for example, you've had the Democrat Party refer to themselves as Democratic. I mean, 
If there's uh, of one of the major political parties, if there's one that is more, quote unquote, Democratic than the other, it damn well is not the Democrat Party. I mean, we've seen how they fixed primaries previously, right? So what it is from a marketing scheme, it's an effort to confuse those that are politically unaware, that are young, also immigrants. It's a big thing for immigrants. Being in South Florida, I see that one a lot. You have a lot of people that that want democracy. And so we're coming to America. We want democracy. Oh, well, that's the Democratic Party. I guess that's the party that I I should be in favor of, right? I mean, this is real. It happens. If you're politically astute and haven't been exposed to these types of considerations, it might sound odd, but I assure you that it's real. So in reality, what has been seen as clear as can be is that Democrats, yeah, they are the party of dictates. They are the party of mandates. They are the party of censorship. And, yeah, I mean, when done right, when done right, conservatism in the Republican Party has been the place for liberty, for freedom. And that's what needs to happen, is conservatism needs to be done right. The Republican Party needs to have the right candidates. And so there is a generational opportunity. There's a need for that kind of leadership. And we're all going to play a pivotal role, pivotal role, as we head into next year. We'll pick up there next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mud Lovin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Afghanistan withdrawal, I call it a surrender. That's one. You have the border pouring through. You have inflation. You have a bad economy. You have uncertainty in so many ways. It's a very tough time. Yeah, sure enough, it is. Sure enough, it is. But there also is opportunity that's being presented because of this tough time and all the broken promises, all the lies of the Obama administration of the left generally. And so that's what I'm focused on. As we get going in tonight's show is the opportunity that's being put in front of us right now. I'm Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. And I'm always looking at things as constructively as possible. Now, reference last night, I happened to do these same two nights a year ago on, on the show. And it was an extremely tough time for all the obvious reasons. Two of the more challenging shows that I've I've done because of how difficult the circumstances were, knowing what we were 
we're facing, what we're up against. We made so much progress on election integrity throughout the course of this year. Not enough. 14 states took steps. And that's a big step forward. But then what happened at the school level where we opened our eyes? I mean, really, the teachers unions, they've been running the show in education for decades. We just hadn't been paying attention. Well, now we are. That's great because that is where the greater conversation needs to take place. We will touch on education a little bit later in the show. But one of the things I'm I'm illustrating is Joe Biden's failure by state, but also by demographics and the generational opportunity. Again, it's normal that younger people tend to be the most likely to be left of any group in the country. Idealistic, not having paid taxes, not having attempted to raise a family. You know, and so historically, we see that as people age, as they learn more, they do typically become more conservative. The difference is we've never in the polling age, which began in the 1930s, we've never seen what we see right now, which is a Democrat president who has the lowest approval rating with the youngest voters. This is unique in that sense. Now, When we take a look at Biden's approval ratings by state, the reason why you rarely hear about approval ratings in individual states outside of election years is that polling costs money. And there's little desire to poll on presidential approval in an awful election year at the state level unless political polling for other considerations already taking place. That's why, for example, heading into November's elections in Virginia and November, You would hear about some Biden approval polling, or lack thereof as the case often was, in advance of those elections, but not really anywhere else. Well, there is an accredited pollster which keeps an active state-by-state presidential poll rolling. It's called Civics. It's an online firm called Civics. And you can pull some of this up. And you can work along with me as we advance into this information. It's C-I-V-I-Q-S. C-I-V-I-Q-S. Go check it out and see what I mean. State by state. Biden's approval ratings are worst youngest. So we'll dive in a bit more. Get to some of your calls as well. Coming up, I'm Brian Mudd. And for the great one, Mark Levin. Levin, the most passionate conservative on radio. Talk with him now at 877-381-3811. A lot of the Marxists in the news media have been trying to pit you against Governor DeSantis in the hopes, I think, of creating like this Republican civil war. I'm of the opinion that, you know, if if you run in 2024, DeSantis will not. So I think it's a moot point. But what, what are your thoughts about Governor DeSantis and kind of this attempted to manufacture, you know, conflict between you two? So I do think if I run, he won't. And he knows that, and we have a very good relationship, by the way. We had, as when I was president, we worked really well together. I helped Florida a lot. I know they try and create a fiction. I don't think it exists at all. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. That is an excerpt from my recent interview with President Trump. And indeed, you probably have, have heard that. Now, certainly this is a much bigger conversation 
in my home state of Florida, where Ron DeSantis is, thank God. I mean, it's something that the one way that I stay sane is that I wake up every day in the free state of Florida. And and for the rest of you, I mean, jeez, I mean, that <laughs> you hang in there, uh, be it by the grace of God. But anyway, uh, obviously it's all local, all local. So Trump's local. Mar-a-Lago now is permanent residence. In fact, the whole Trump family's been moving down. Don Jr., Kimberly Guilfoyle, they recently moved to uh, to Jupiter, and uh, as did Eric and Laura. So it's it's a family affair with the Trumps in Palm Beach County now. But uh, th- this whole attempt to try to you know take the two down together, and you, you heard what Trump had to say. And by the way, I don't think that DeSantis will run uh, should Trump run, which I have every expectation that he will also have some other insight from some of the goings-on with the president, the former president, from that interview, but also uh, some some recent conversations behind the scenes as well, including about Speaker. One of the things I've been talking about, the opportunity that's presented because of just what an abject failure Joe Biden has been as president of the United States today. All right, and just before the bottom of the hour break, I referenced an online polling firm, Civics. If you're not familiar with them and you're into data, you should be because they are the only online, ongoing, accredited firm that's out there, okay? And part of the way that they gather analytics, they do it by state. So we, in real time, all the time, have data on all 50 states and D.C. and demographic information. And by the way, it's free, so you can just go check this stuff out. It's a really good resource. So what I have aggregated, what I'm getting ready to share with you, is based upon the latest information as of today, courtesy of said civics. So currently, you have President Biden being shown at a 37% approval rating, which is close to the national polling averages if you take a look at you know, a lot of what's out there with the, the major pollsters. What I was talking about, how Biden's approval rating is lowest, youngest. I'm going to work from those that are oldest down to those that are youngest in terms of approval rating. Because there's a story. Biden's approval rating is best, oldest, and worst, youngest. So for those 65 and older, Biden's at 42%. And that's as good as it gets. For those between the ages of 50 to 64, it's down to 39 now. Drops to 37% for those 35 to 49. And as I referenced at the onset of the show, for those between the ages of 18 to 34, just 29%. Historic in so many ways, including the fact that, again, never has there been a Democrat president, not at any point in the point age since the 1930s, where a Democrat president has had the lowest approval ratings with those that are youngest. So this is interesting, but it's also an opportunity. Now, it doesn't mean that just because you have so many really unhappy young voters, they're going to become conservatives. A lot of them may even want Biden to be harder left than he has been. But when people are unhappy, there's opportunity. And there's opportunity to reach them with information. 
That's a big part of the role that we're going to play. And I'm going to break down some of what's going on in the States as well, because that story is equally remarkable. First, let's go to, speaking of states, one of the five states where Biden is still somehow or another above water in Kona, Hawaii. We've got Kevin. Kevin, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? I've been doing good. It is, uh, it's good to talk to you. I'm a big fan of the coffee. Um, not so much of, <laughs> not so much of the politics that are emanating from Hawaii, but, uh, I mean, tell your, your thoughts about Biden and, and tell us what's going on there. Uh, you know, we've always been expensive out here. Uh, probably one of the most expensive places in the nation just because we're an island. But I mean, even since Biden has gotten into office, it has just gotten ridiculous. Like you couldn't, like you wouldn't believe how expensive stuff is if I told you, you know, 10 bucks for a gallon of milk uh, i pay 480 something a gallon of gas you know it's it's crazy but uh i couldn't tell you a single person that i know that that thinks he's doing a good job and uh you know hawaii is basically the world's largest small town so pretty much everyone gets each other's attitude you know uh the closest i've seen to a biden sticker i was was a funny story i was driving home from work yesterday i saw a lady scraping a biden harris sticker off the bumper of her new car and you know it, it, you, kevin it's it's actually funny that uh you reference that because with mr call screener and uh assistant mr producer uh we were just having that conversation and one of the things that um i i was observing and you can do this as well when was the last time you know like you'll still see the cars that drive around on occasion with the obama 08 stickers right but when was the last time you you saw that biden 20 sticker I mean, and it's fascinating uh, here in, in South Florida, and they're prevalent. And we're we're blue territory down here that we've been trending far more red in recent years. But y- you can't find a bind sticker. I mean, nobody wants to hold up their hand and say, "Yeah, I'm that person anymore." They are gone. So I think that's interesting. One thing about Hawaiian politics, and and I'm interested to get your your insight here. Obviously, you got all the islands. In Honolulu, you got, you know, your big population base. You know, it seems like there could be a similar situation where we have uh, in in most states where you have large cities that tend to skew hard left. And then, you know, everything, uh, you know, beyond that tends to be a bit more conservative. You're on Kona, one of the uh, the smaller islands. I mean, is that the story that goes on there that really it's Honolulu that's driving the show to the left? You know, pretty much. Um, it's kind of um, uh, Honolulu has a really large Filipino and a really large Japanese population. Um, I remember a, a gubernatorial candidate about 20 years ago. His his campaign platform, literally, he got on stage and said, I'm Filipino and my wife is Japanese. Vote for me. And he won. <laughs> that was, uh, I swear to God, it's Ben Cayetano. You can look it up. That yeah. was his platform. I'm Filipino. My wife's Japanese. Vote for me. And he won. And Politics is kind of racial out here because people tend to, you know, look at it that way, which is a very left way of looking at things. You know, everything has to do with your skin color, which is really the least interesting thing about a person. Yeah, one would think, right, um, except in the world of identity politics, which does play on the left, uh, where, of, of course, they're supposed to be the tolerant ones. But, hey, Kevin, I, I appreciate the call, and I, I sincerely wish you well, and uh, I, I do love the Hawaiian Islands, and actually uh, hope to be heading back uh, your your way coming up uh, next year, coming up, uh, you know, maybe maybe next summer. So, anyway, and I do hope that you get your politics right there, because it is pretty remarkable. I was just taking a look at this, actually. 
Hawaii's approval rating. Again, there are only five states, only five states, Cinco, where you have Joe Biden in positive territory in terms of his approval rating. So in Hawaii today, Joe Biden sports 51% approval to 38% disapproval. So you do still have a majority of folks on the islands that are going, yes. Give me some more of that sweet action, which apparently includes your your $10 milk and your, your five-buck gas you got going on there. I don't understand it either. I don't. And in the for-what-it's-worth category, part of the reason I was interested in that conversation uh, as well, is I've heard similar things from folks that, especially Maui, where you have some some business owners that were like, you know, we're, we're not going to you know pay any attention to what the governor's edicts were during you know, lockdowns and everything else, they're they're out there trying to make a living. Although in Hawaii, in many cases, they're getting paid far more not to work or not to operate the business than they, they would actually operating it. But nevertheless, so let's take a look at, at some of what goes on in these states. When you, you take a look at um, states that Biden won last year, there are 20 states now where he's underwater, where he has a net negative approval rating, 20. You start taking a look at at those states, Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, his home state of Delaware, Georgia. Okay, so let me just pause on these first five here for a second. We all know how close and how potentially absurd the final result in Arizona and Georgia what that ended up being, right? Biden's approval rating in Arizona right now is 36%. I mean, if you had a rematch, Trump and Biden today in Arizona, Trump doesn't just win Arizona. It's a landslide. That's how much has shifted over the course of a year. Georgia. Georgia, get this. Of any state that Biden won last year, He has the worst approval rating in Georgia, 30%. Biden's approval rating in the state of Georgia is 30%. He has 29% net disapproval. Boy, you think there's a lot of buyer's remorse that's going on there? Then you take a look at other states. Biden won, is underwater in. Illinois, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada. So there's Nevada, another state that always looks interesting, but, you know, Democrats in over the past couple of decades always seem to pull out in the end. Biden's approval rating is down to 37 percent in Nevada. And you take a look at New Jersey. New Jersey, along with New Hampshire and New Mexico and now New York. So here's here's something. In New York. Joe Biden now has a net disapproval rating of 5%. In New Jersey, that now stands at 17%. By the way, Murphy, I mean, he is thanking his lucky you-know-what. That election was held in early November because he would be waxed if there was a rematch today. I mean, he got through Murphy to New Jersey just in the nick of time. That was a state that Biden won by 16 points where he now has a 17% net disapproval rating. Other states won by Biden, where he's now underwater. Oregon, 
Pennsylvania, Rhode Island. Well, Virginia, that won't surprise you given what happened in November. Washington and Wisconsin. So there is a a significant, significant turning point that's happening here. Let's go to Sean in Tacoma, Washington. Speaking of one of the states that uh, now you have Biden that is no longer approved of. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, it's John, but that's all right. I'm Irish, so I take Sean. Um, (laughs) Anyway, I I keep listening to all these talk shows uh, talking about, well, this state's turning blue, this state. You were just talking about where your your little area down there in Florida is turning blue. Um, It's turning red. It's turning red. Well, now it is. (laughs) But I, I... um, I think per, they've been purposely putting these people on planes and, and buses, uh, the illegals, just to start saturating a bright red area to try to make it purple. I mean, I think that's been their plan the whole time with this open borders crap. And, There's a lot uh, of truth to that. Uh, well, uh, and people are starting to wise up to it, I hope. And for your little, for your last statement where you said if there was a rematch. Uh, Trump would have won by landslide in Arizona. Well, I don't know if it was a landslide, but I believe he won last time. I understand that. understand that. And it wouldn't even be close enough to where there would be uh, any room for for recounts. I'll put it that way. I appreciate the the call, John. And, uh, yeah, I mean, but I'll tell you, here in South Florida, you mentioned uh, now it's turning. Now, we've been turning in South Florida over uh, the past 15 to 17 years, but that's a whole other story for a different time. But there is a turning point that's happening now. But the question is, what do we do with this progress that's being made? And we'll talk about that next. I'm Brian Mudd, and for The Great One. Mudd in. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi handing you the gavel. Tell me how satisfying it would be for her to have to hand you that gavel. It's very interesting because so many people are talking about that. And, you know, I get along with Congress very well. Hey, you talk about must-see TV. I mean, tell me that in the grand scheme of satisfaction that can be had prior to the 2024 election cycle, tell me there is anything potentially more satisfying than seeing Nancy Pelosi having to hand that gavel over to Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, get your popcorn ready. That's entertainment, right? On top of everything else that would be represented there. Part of my uh, recent interview with President Trump, and just as he did not walk away from it there, he did kind of dance sideways. Um, I get along well with Congress. He didn't. He didn't say no. Subsequent to that conversation, in a private setting, I've also put this in front of him. And, and I'll just say that he's he's not walked away from it yet. It's definitely something that's been on his mind and something that you should remember in the construct of the speakership is that you don't have to be a member of the House. Now, there are a lot of ways we could get from here to there. I mean, Donald Trump could decide that he wants to run for Congress. He's a full-time resident of the state of Florida now. 
Among other things, we are gaining a congressional district as part of the census. The map's still being worked on here in the state of Florida. So there's an open district. That could be an opportunity, perhaps, for him to run and not compete against even perhaps an existing Republican within the state of Florida. We also have something that's a yeah, borderline kooky law in the state of Florida that says you don't even have to live in the district that you represent in Congress. So technically, you know, he could just kind of pick and choose what district he might want to run in if he chose to do that. I suspect that probably isn't the path he would take. But think of this one. What Donald Trump is interested in doing right now is shaping candidates. He wants the right candidates in the right places winning these primaries across the country. How much more effective could he be in that effort than if he put himself on the ballot, so to speak, by seeing who would be willing to support and vote for him being Speaker of the House in Republican primaries? Stand by. That could get interesting. Continue the conversation next. I'm Brian Mudd, and for the great one, Mark Levin. here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. I've got to say, a little different than Chicago, would you say? Yeah, a little bit. And, uh, a little Chicago, bit. Chicago is a far worse battlefield. Yeah, this case be made. Actually, uh, might be an interesting exercise. Take a look at violent crime stats from Chicago compared to Afghanistan. See where we sit these days. Now, it is pretty remarkable. Talked about so much of what's happened over the the past eleven plus months. It's just remarkable that. Again, if you set out to to really jack up this country, you'd have a harder time being successful than Joe Biden has been. It's almost as though it's intentional. So, of course, much of this a la the border has been. And to a certain extent, certainly Afghanistan, although no doubt incompetence plays a huge role there and in so many of his other failures as well. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. There's an excerpt from my recent interview with President Trump, and I'm the host of the Morning Rush, WJNO in West Palm Beach, the Brian Mudd Show, WIOD in Miami. Always an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. You may follow me at Brian Mudd Radio on Twitter, on Getter, on Parler, and I love getting your responses, interacting with you, your questions as well, some of which are being incorporated into this evening's show. Get to your calls here in a bit as well. A lot of what I set up in the first hour is the groundwork for where we are today. It's remarkable that out of the states Joe Biden won, and Biden won 25 states and D.C. last year. Okay, 25 in D.C. There are only five, count them just five states in real time where Joe Biden has a net positive approval rating anymore. That is remarkable in so many different ways. And it is Carter-esque. It's Jimmy Carter-esque. But the difference is, it took Jimmy Carter over three years to fail as badly 
in the eyes of the American people, as Joe Biden has already done within his first year in office. And so what we're seeing shape up is a historic opportunity, and there's a generational opportunity. Much of what I've discussed isn't just that Joe Biden is underwater in 20 states that he won last year, but also that his approval ratings are worst youngest, and they've only continued to get worse since I first began this research the week of Thanksgiving. This includes, just since Thanksgiving, New York and New Jersey having gone negative on Biden. And Biden's approval ratings among voters 18 to 34 falling below 30%. So the question becomes, what do we do with this? I'm going to talk a bit more about that, but just to kind of put all these pieces together for a second. To give you some context, electoral college context, given that Biden is only above water in five states in Washington, D.C., a generic ballot Republican would be favored to beat Joe Biden if an election were held today, 449 to 89. And what we're seeing with Joe Biden's crashing approval rating is far removed from your typical blue state, red state types of discussions. Many comparisons, many comparisons are made, and I've continued to advance the between Biden and, and Carter. But what we are seeing It's not just the worst approval performance relative to where one started for a first-term president. But in the context of the Electoral College, think about this. Jimmy Carter lost to Ronald Reagan 489-49 to in 1980. And I know that you take a look at how politics has played out in the decades since. And I think for many on the right, you're going, oh, my gosh, it's we, we can never get back to that place. Well, I mean, after Nixon and when Jimmy Carter became president, how many Republicans thought that Ronald Reagan would beat an incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, 489 to 49? The point is, things can change that quickly when there are generational opportunities presented which is what we're seeing right now. And again, it wasn't what was different about the era of Reagan. It wasn't just about winning an election. You really did create a generation of more conservatively-minded individuals. My generation, the Xers, tend to be, these days, among the most conservative of of any generation. Those that are of the silent generation, certainly the greatest generation. But... Beyond that, yeah, it's it's Xers. And why? Because it was about policy and seeing the effect of policy in everyday life. And to that end, and with the desire for Americans to have liberty, to have freedom, to be able to prosper, to be successful, and to realize that, which was happening, by the way, in an unprecedented way across demographics under the Trump presidency until the vid, that's where this conversation, this opportunity needs to advance. Now, one of the big issues in front of us has been the need to fix our elections. And for all the obvious reasons. A year ago, I was laying out what I thought was the constructive path forward. And I talked 
on this particular night, on this particular show a year ago, about the need to focus on election integrity reform and to focus on what's happening in the classroom. And when I've thought back to the progress that's been made throughout the course of this year, I feel really good about it. 14 states that have moved on election integrity. Some more than others, but 14 states that have taken action. That's huge. Including key states like Georgia, Texas, my state of Florida. More needs to be done there to continue to press for election integrity. On that front, it is really important that we have poll watchers and that we have poll workers. One of the regular questions I'll get coming up around election time from from listeners is, well, what is it that I can do to help? Well, truth is, there are some things, certainly as you get close to an election cycle itself. But if you really want to make a difference, aside from just playing your role as an informed voter, getting involved early is important. Because if you get involved late in the game, you might not be able to get trained quickly enough, or you might not be able to have the opportunity that is necessary to become an effective poll watcher or, in many cases, better still, a poll worker. You know, if you could actually be a poll worker, that goes even farther than being a poll watcher. And so you have a lot of supervisors of elections clear across the country that are hiring, that that have these openings, that have these positions. We need to be thinking strategically that way. There should never be a district anywhere USA where we don't have eyes on ballots. And so right now, if you have an opportunity to engage that way, you should be doing so. Last I touched a bit on becoming candidates. We need good candidates. So many people will get to elections, especially local elections, and you start taking a look at the candidates that you're presented with, and you're like, well, shoot, I don't, I don't like any of these people. Or I don't know enough about these people. Well, I mean, at that point, you might be just making a decision of the lesser of evils. So vetting candidates as early as possible is important. Now, it's interesting. Uh, recently, in a private setting with, with President Trump, he was vetting candidates, one of which was a school board candidate in Texas. That's how engaged Donald Trump is. That's how much he realizes how important every election is. And these these school board races and what's happening in the classroom. So we absolutely need to be minding the story that way. I want to touch a bit on election integrity here for a second. And I'm going to present some new information to you. First, just to recount something that I briefly hit on in last, last night's show. From the Heritage Foundation and their voter fraud database. The first thing is, it's always been the big lie, the biggest lie, that there's no such thing as... Election fraud as voter fraud, you know, the oh, it's just this myth and, you know, the right wing trumps all this stuff up. Well, no, it's it's fact, because as I like to say, there are two sides to stories and one side of facts. Since the Heritage Foundation began tracking data as part of their voter fraud database, there are thirteen hundred and thirty four proven cases. Legally proven cases of voter fraud, and that doesn't mean one thousand three hundred and thirty four votes. No, these are situations which often involve many votes, but that many different elections where it has been proven 
that misfeasance took place. There have been 1,147 criminal convictions for voter fraud, but it's not a real thing. In 2021, we've had 15 proven cases and 11 criminal convictions for voter fraud near exclusively stemming from last fall's elections, including in these states, California, Colorado, Kansas, Michigan, isn't that cute, Mississippi, New Hampshire, another swing state there that Biden won. Oh, look at that, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Uh uh-huh, Virginia, and West Virginia. Again, there have been proven, successfully prosecuted cases of voter fraud in those states this year. But something else recently was brought to light to me. And it was kind of like a shame on me moment for not having found it myself. But the Public Interest Legal Foundation, they do incredible work. Jay Christian Adams in particular, just incredible work, recently brought me some information that was really eye-opening. And I want to dive into what has been referred to prosecutors involving voter fraud, but hasn't been followed up on by local prosecutors. We often talk about this in the context of our big cities, right? Why is is crime the way that it is in, in so many cities? Well, you have prosecutors that aren't prosecuting and you have all this, you know, nonsense, no bail kind of stuff, no cash bail deal. I mean, but it doesn't stop there. What about referred voter fraud that's going unprosecuted as well? This is something else, as we look to 2022, we need to have our eyes on. So I'm going to dive into that next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mud Lovin. I did not say I support mandates on domestic flights. I said that is something that is on the table for consideration. I didn't say I support it or didn't support it. The foul sounds more like a leftist politician every day, doesn't it? I didn't support it, nor did I not support it. We're we're considering it, the Fouch. That was uh, the Fouch on MSNBC today. By the way, uh, yeah, I mean, consistency in policy with the Biden administration right down to lifting the travel ban on South Africa that he put in place a day after the most cases that have been reported during the course of the pandemic in the United States. I mean, if you're going to follow the logic in his policy, that makes perfect sense, right? Anyway, continuing with the conversation, Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin, uh, the conversation about voter fraud cases. So I shared the latest from the Heritage Foundation's voter fraud database, where indeed we've had over 1,300 proven cases of voter fraud. It's been proven in the courts. Over 1,100 criminal convictions. We have had criminal convictions of proven cases in 2021, stemming from last fall. These have been proven in California, Colorado, Kansas, Michigan, Mississippi, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia. But something else that's put on my radar is there's a lot more that's not being prosecuted. 
it's not just the local smash and grab mob that's out there that is getting away with with crime. People that have been referred, people where there is enough evidence that has been collected that they've been referred to state prosecutors for voter fraud, for misfeasance, but it hasn't been followed up on. This was a revelation of sorts that was brought to my attention recently. And it was brought to my attention through a conversation with Jay Christian Adams of the Public Interest Legal Foundation. He sent me a report detailing unprosecuted voter fraud cases. And my jaw dropped. I mean, it really was stunning to me. And so I ended up talking to him to get some more context to it. And the pervasiveness of referred voter fraud that's not being pursued by prosecutors, but still could be right now. It's extensive. Now, because of geography, I'm in Florida. I've broken down through the PILF's report, Florida's information. And I'm just going to give you a little bit about Florida and what isn't currently being pursued by prosecutors with referred voter fraud. There are currently, in the state of Florida alone, 156 pending voter fraud cases. These are 156 cases that have had enough evidence that have been brought to prosecutors, officially referred to prosecutors by authorities, but the prosecutors haven't pursued the charges. That includes right in the biggest blue areas within this particular state, 12 unprosecuted voter fraud cases in Palm Beach County, 42 in Miami-Dade, and 78 in the biggest blue bastion in Florida, Broward County. Now, you want to know what type of cases we're talking about? Oh, yeah, they run the gamut. Voting multiple times in a single election. Forging voter signatures. Felon voting without restoration of rights. Non-citizens voting. A lot of that that's been happening. And votes being cast in the names of the deceased. I mean, after all, if the dead aren't voting in an election, have you really held an election? Pick up on this point and also get to some of your calls next. I'm Brian Munn, and for the great one, Mark Levin. Yes, it's true that Mark Levin is the fastest growing radio show in America. The Mark Levin Show is on at 877-381-3811. We discussed the rising COVID cases, especially coming out of the holidays. And as uh, as I said last week, Omicron is a source of concern, but it should not be a source of panic. Hey, it's almost making sense there. Now, you know what? what's happened here? It should not be a source of panic. Now that we had more cases in, in a single day than we've had at any point in the pandemic, this occurred yesterday in the United States, now we shouldn't panic. I mean, up to this point, you should have panicked because, well, we need you to panic because we need you to do everything that we say, including 
getting vaccinated or you should be fine. That still should happen, right? So you should not panic. Let's let's work on Biden's logic here for a moment. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. You should not panic. But a week from today, if you're not vaccinated, you still should be fired. I mean, just at the point where Joe Biden almost was starting to make some sense, you realize, no, his the actions versus words, right? Actions speak louder than words. Okay, so don't panic. Just lose your job. If you don't get injected with whatever the hell I say you get injected with, I'm Joe Biden. I mean, it's fascinating, right? Again, about as consistent as anything that comes out of this administration. But anyway, continuing with some of the information I was just giving you on what we have to pay attention to going forward. So a year ago at this time, I was putting a heavy emphasis on the need at the state level for election integrity measures coming out of what we saw in the 2020 election cycle. There's a lot more work that should be done in many parts of the country, though we made a lot of progress. 14 states, 14 states that took steps, took substantive steps on election integrity measures this year. That's good. Also, taking a look at the continuation of the voter fraud that's been prosecuted. Most voter fraud, and this is what is always difficult in the context of coming right out of an election. You know, when you had the window of time for a potential legal challenge by the Trump team last year. Well, the truth of the matter is it takes a lot of time generally to get together enough evidence to be able to bring charges against people for voter fraud. Right. I mean, you take a look at a lot of big cases. How quickly do they often come together? And so what we've seen is numerous successfully prosecuted voter fraud cases. Many states across the country, including numerous states where there were questionable outcomes, like Michigan and Pennsylvania, among others, successfully prosecuted voter fraud this year for what took place last fall. But in the, but wait, there's more category. Sharing with you, before the bottom of the hour break, information from the Public Interest Legal Foundation and how they discovered so many referred voter fraud cases Cases where authorities have collected enough evidence to refer them to state prosecutors, but that prosecutors haven't followed up on. This year, there has only been one voter fraud or misfeasance-related case successfully brought in the state of Florida. Yet there are 156 that are pending But there's no movement on it. And they're almost all exclusively in Democrat-run counties. And he's surprised there. Now, why is it that we aren't seeing action here? And as I was referencing, the types of fraud that's been monitored, that's been referred by authorities, but not pursued by prosecutors, voting multiple times in a single election, forging voter signatures, Felon voting without restoration of rights, non-citizen voting, votes cast in the names of the deceased because, I mean, of course the dead must vote. They have rights too. So it runs the gambit. And so that takes me to the next eye-opening point. We need to see what's going on in our own backyard. What about in your county? 
What about across your state? Are there pending voter fraud cases? Are there cases that have been referred but aren't being pursued? Because based on the information being brought forward by the Public Interest Legal Foundation, there are far more pending cases than those that have been seen through. That needs to happen. And I'm going to get to why it is so critically important that happens beyond even the obvious reasons coming up in just a few. But first, let's go to Chris in Santa Clara, California. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Brian. Um, I, I wanted to point out with regard to some of the polling data that's out there, the cross tabs, and you know, I know you're a numbers guy as well. That you know, this is not just about you know the overall Biden numbers appearing to drop, but when you really dive into the numbers, it is close to more than seventy-three percent of white non-college voters in all the polls, whether it's Kenny Appiak or Marist NPR or ABC or Fox. So you're talking about left-leaning polls, right-leaning polls all across. Almost three-quarters of non-college educated white men actively oppose Biden. But in also every one of those polls, I mean every one, even Fox, it's showing that a majority of women of color still support Biden, including when you ask specifically economy-related questions. So, you know, that's an issue that's really not getting out there in terms of the the overall public discussion, just as, oh, Biden's numbers going down, down, down. But this is not, um, you know, across all groups. Um, Also, you mentioned in terms of the, uh, you know, what would this mean for a matchup again between Biden and Trump? Ironically, actually, Trump's numbers have not gone up. And in all those polls that ask the question, Biden still has a one to two percent lead if it was a rematch regarding Trump. Um, but but I wanted to hear a little bit from you about what you thought with regard to why the media is not being more clear about the dominant anti-Biden feeling among white men. Because, you know, what president in the history of the country has such a low percentage of support from people who supposedly look like him? OK, you bring up a number of instructive points, and I appreciate appreciate the call, Chris. Um I'll address what you're asking here, and I, I want to just take on a, a few of the a few of the data points that you you hit on there. So the first thing that's important, the overall polling approval numbers. I mean, they matter, but not really, right? Because as we know, elections are won in the states. So one of the reasons that I was diligent in breaking this down and talking about the generational opportunity based upon age considerations, but also states in particular, is that I don't really give a rat's rear end if it's a Fox News poll or a Quinnipiac or or whatever, if they say that in a head-to-head Biden versus Trump, you know, Biden would win by one or whatever, because it doesn't mean anything. It never actually has. If you take a look at the states, the individual states, again, just to, to Biden has a net negative approval rating. In 20 states that he won, we've not seen anything like this since Jimmy Carter. In Arizona, Biden has a 36% approval rating. He's underwater in that state, well into the double digits. Georgia, Biden has a net disapproval rating of 29%. And so I don't give a, a, a rip. If Fox or Quinnipiac or Inset, whoever, well, Biden would, would beat Trump by a point. Bull freaking crap. 
he gets waxed in the Electoral College. And I don't think it would play out that way. Anyway, and, and, and it's probably neither here nor there because, I mean, who really thinks that Biden's going to be on the, the, the you know, ticket again in, in 2024? The point is simply whether it be by people wanting Trump more or simply realizing, holy cow, Biden is that awful. I'd much rather have Trump. The, the fact remains that Biden's failure has been so pervasive that you have states like New Jersey and New York to where he now has net disapproval. So it would be a landslide in the Electoral College. That's one. You talk about the breakout, male versus female, or minority groups and the crosstabs. Okay, so there's a lot of truth to this. Now, one of the things for the consistency of the data that I'm using, and I provided this earlier, civics. It's the only online, ongoing, accredited pollster. And by the way, the information is free. You can go to civics.com and check out exactly what I'm referencing uh, in tonight's show. All the information that I've presented is updated for today. I'm just going to walk through some things. You brought up a, a very good point about minority groups in particular. So if we take a look at the overall average approval rating, first by race, the average approval rating of Joe Biden by white Americans is 20 9%. Male, female, those that identify as frogs, whatever, 29%. It bounces to 50% approval among those who are Hispanic or Latino. And it's at 65% among those that identify as being black or African American. And by the way, only 18% disapproval among black Americans, okay? So, Yes, we are still seeing huge swings based upon race. That's one. Then you talked about the college-educated versus the non-college-educated. There actually is, is not as much difference as you might think. So while Biden's approval rating is worst among the non-college graduate at 36%, and it is best among postgraduates, the most formally educated, at 42%, you're still only seeing about six points difference right now, top to bottom, regardless of education level. And then you were talking about gender as well. Biden's approval rating among males, 32%, females, 41%. So yes, there's truth to everything that you were saying. Yes, you still have the, the greater the level of formal education, the more likely they are to approve somehow or another. I mean, it, it is evidence that it's possible to become more formally educated, yet more ignorant at the same time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the numbers aren't that vastly different. And, yes, it's true, women are far more likely to approve of Biden than men, but you still have a 41% approval rating compared to a 48% disapproval rating among females. And then, if you take a look at those that identify as being independents, not identifying with the political party, well, it's only 26% to 63%. So my final answer to your, your ultimate question there at the end is so much of what's done in a lot of the polling isn't written and the way it's being used by news media is based on a false premise because it doesn't matter what some ubiquitous national poll says about anything. It never has. That is all a construct that's presented for a narrative by news media. And thus... I don't have anything other to say about it rather than just the facts that I presented. And that's where I want to remain constructive. Let's go to Joe in Ocala, Florida. Joe, go. 
Yeah, how you doing, Brian? This is uh, your homeboy from Florida. Oh, good, uh, and uh, glad yeah, to hear from you. Yeah, I want to comment on the, the major problem is Article 2 in our Constitution. Everybody's overlooking. The Constitution gives primary power, which means in Latin, absolute and definitive, to the state legislatures for laws and procedures regarding all elections. What happened was the Uniparty worked with the Republicans, worked with the Democrats, and subverted our laws and procedures yeah. on all in 12 states, and now they're covering it up. Well, Joe, you, you, I mean, look, you, you, you bring up a good point, which is there's no doubt in, in the name of the virus last year, this happened, right? You did have end rounds that took place in states clear across the country to where state legislatures, what they had set at, as ter- in, in terms of election law, it was being usurped because of extraordinary circumstances, emergency declarations, which really was unconstitutional. It was illegal. In cases that were challenged, like in Pennsylvania, for example, we saw what the uh, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did in upholding that unconstitutional, uh, you know, edict at the the state level, overruling the legislature and the United States Supreme Court unwilling to hear that particular case. We saw similar action that took place in Georgia and in Arizona. So what you say is is correct. It did happen. The better news is that a state like Georgia, for example, that can never happen again. The Additional election integrity measures that were passed covered even emergency circumstances. And so we would not see a repeat in that particular state. And, and there were 14 states that took measures along these lines. That's some of the progress that's been made. And again, we need to keep our eye on the prize and we need to keep working in the direction of election integrity everywhere, including what I'm talking about here with the Public Interest Legal Foundation and all of these referred cases that are not being pursued by prosecutors. And I'll continue with that as well. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd Lovin. Following the death of George Floyd and many Democrat-led cities defunded police. Voters follow that rhetoric, electing soft on crime prosecutors. Some of those prosecutors saw police tactics as the problem. They also wanted to drop gun enhancement for felons. Law enforcement fatalities rose by 24% by gunfire and assaults by 50%. With fewer cops on the street and fewer felons in jail, we saw more smash and grab robberies. Even progressive mayors who supported soft on crime policies in the past are being forced to reverse themselves. Yeah, no doubt. Even as the tide has turned on the defund movement, the damage, we see it every single day in our communities, don't we? That report filed by William Longinus of Fox News, and it tells a story. Now, you heard prosecutors that are not pursuing criminals. Well, this has been a theme as well of voter fraud cases. For as many voter fraud cases as have been proven in the courts, among the many, just check out the Heritage Foundation's voter fraud database, As I've been talking about this hour, the Public Interest Legal Foundation has identified vastly more cases that have been referred by authorities to where law enforcement has gathered enough information about misfeasance and potential voter fraud that they've handed it to prosecutors and said, go get these people 
and they haven't done anything about it. Including in my state of Florida, there being 156 pending voter fraud cases, almost exclusively in Democrat-run counties. What's happening in your state? What's happening in your counties? This is where you need to get more information with the Public Interest Legal Foundation and follow up and put the heat on local prosecutors, state prosecutors, that are not pursuing referred voter fraud cases. And when it came down to the PILF and why they said so many of these referred voter fraud cases aren't being pursued, these were their conclusions and recommendations. They said prosecutors failed to prosecute election crimes for a number of reasons, among them ideological opposition to enforcing the law. Think about this. Among them, ideological opposition to enforcing the law. When it comes to referred voter fraud, referred voter fraud, anybody see a problem there? So I'm going to pick up with the rest of the recommendations and what you need to be aware of and something we all need to follow up on in 2022. I'm Brian Mudd. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. On his first full day here at Rehoboth Beach, President Biden signed a proclamation ending a travel ban. This is for those coming from several countries in Southern Africa to the United States. He implemented that about a month ago. In the proclamation ending that travel ban, the president writes, quote, I took that action to slow the spread of the Omicron variant into the United States and to enable the United States to implement appropriate mitigation measures while new information emerged about the variant. He says it is no longer necessary, and so that travel ban ends Friday. Yeah, I mean, nothing to see here, folks. I mean, yeah. I mean, on one hand, you should be freaking out, especially if you're not vaccinated. I mean, remember, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So if you're unvaccinated, and and by, by the way, I mean, now being unvaccinated means that you haven't had at least the triple vax, right? So if you haven't been triple vaxxed, I mean, you need to freak out. You need to panic. But otherwise, after yesterday being the day with the most COVID-19 cases of any particular day in these states united since the pandemic began, yeah, today made sense to be the day where, I mean, so much has, has changed in terms of the information flow, given that we've now had more cases than at any point that, yeah, we're going to go ahead and relax that, that travel ban from South Africa. Now, it was failed logic to institute it the way he did in the first place. But if you accept the premise of why he put it in place, you could not find a less logical time to remove it than the day after we've had more cases of COVID-19 in the United States at any other time during the pandemic. But that's Joe Biden's America for you. Just like what happens a week from today. A week from today. It's because Joe Biden is anti-American. It's kind of weird to say about the president of the United States, but he is. The guy's an anti-American president. By the way, I'm Brian Mudd. 
in for the uh, great one, Mark Levin. I'm the host of the Morning Rush, WJNO in West Palm Beach, and the Brian Mudd Show, WIOD in Miami. You may reach out, connect with me, follow me, what have you. Social media, at Brian Mudd Radio, on Twitter, Parler, Getter, and uh, always look forward to hearing from you. So, yeah, about the anti-American Biden presidency. That is absolutely what the administration's OSHA rule over COVID-19 vaccine mandates is. So here we are a week from today. You get the OSHA rule that goes into effect. So a week from, from today, all employees who work for companies with 100 or more employees in states that haven't passed their own laws protected employees from these mandates, well, they, they potentially, what, get fired? And that's kind of where we are, right? So it's interesting not only in terms of the consistency of the Biden policy, like with the travel ban that is now being lifted with South Africa, but isn't it interesting that they also decided to wait until after the holidays to have this hit, which just speaks to the simply arbitrary nature of this anti-American mandate. I mean, think about it. If it is such an emergency that you need to be vaccinated. You need to be jabbed with whatever the hell they say you get injected with and however many times they say you're going to get injected with it, or you should lose your career. You should be fired. You deserve to be fired. It's that big of a deal, but not until January 4th. What sense does that make? Where is the logic? So it's just completely arbitrary, like everything else that is made up with this pandemic. Now, let's be clear about what this is. The walking, talking, napping dumpster fire that is Joe Biden and this administration, they're point blank telling you and demanding of you that you bend to their will or you get fired. You don't have a career in this country. Could there be anything more anti-American? And of course, and we touched on this last night, you have the Supreme Court that's taking up this case, yes, but not until a week from Friday or a few days after this has already hit. So who the heck knows what exactly this is going to look like a week from now? Just as much of a mess as everything else this guy has had a hand in since he became president of the United States. Now, in the last hour, I was talking about the importance of election integrity from a different angle this time. One that recently was placed on my radar and something that we all need to be mindful of. Pending voter fraud cases that are being unprosecuted. It's not just the smash and grab criminals that are being led off by leftist prosecutors that don't want to enforce the law. Now, it's voter fraud as well. In fact, for as many voter fraud cases as have been successfully prosecuted, and there are many, there are many more based upon the Public Interest Legal Foundation's reporting. Far more that are pending that have been referred. And to that end, And with the conclusion of recommendations by the PILF as to why we have 
hundreds to thousands across the country of pending voter fraud cases that are not being pursued, their top conclusion was this. Prosecutors failed to prosecute election crimes for a number of reasons, among them ideological opposition to enforcing the law. That's a holy crap kind of moment. Ideological opposition to enforcing the law. It's what happens when those Soros candidates end up winning these elections, isn't it? They note that prosecutors who adopt an ideological approach to their job should not be prosecutors, which, good summation. Among their other findings, other reasons why prosecutors failed to prosecute election-related crimes that have been referred to them. They say that many of these prosecutors are unfamiliar with trying election-related crimes in these types of cases, so they just don't have the experience. Easier, if you don't have the experience, eh, just to look the other way and not do anything. They note that this could be remedied if state officials were to conduct training and provide county prosecutors the benefits of continuing education from experienced lawyers who have successfully conducted election crimes prosecutions. And they note that there are increasingly fewer of these people that are around to be able to train them. They say another reason election crimes are not prosecuted is the media's steady drumbeat that voter fraud does not exist. They say it makes prosecutors skittish about enforcing the law because they're afraid of becoming the story. Think about that. You want to know the media's impact potentially on this situation. Well, if your news media lies to you over and over and over again, well, there is no voter fraud. And what a, prosecutors, they don't want to actually point out, well, yeah, there is. Well, in fact, we have a ton of pending cases here in my office. They don't want to make the news. They don't want to become part of that story. These are real-world problems that we're facing right now. Problems that just recently were brought to my attention that we all need to be mindful of. That's why I'm putting this on your radar. They also say that election workers must be carefully trained to read and understand all entries in poll books to prevent double voting, whether intentional or unintentional. This is huge. This is huge. We need election workers. And by the way, if you want to get involved... Even better, perhaps, than being a poll watcher is to actually be a poll worker, to be an election worker, be on the inside, be paid even, for that matter. Help make a difference. But make sure that you're trained and make sure that you understand everything and and what the law is so that there aren't legitimate mistakes. That might be some of what's going on here is that you have well-intentioned workers that are just kind of clueless and are being taken advantage of by those that are trying to game the system. So, among these recommendations, it is, I I think, pretty eye-opening in multiple respects. And it all makes sense to me. By the way, in Florida, on the basis of this information, our Governor Ron DeSantis has proposed a statewide agency to spearhead election fraud investigations. Because if we're going to have county prosecutors that don't do the job, well, the state should have the opportunity to step in and see to it that justice is served. Because, of course, every voter is potentially 
disenfranchised if you have rogue prosecutors that don't enforce election fraud. So when you you take a look at what faces us, have we made progress during the course of this year? Yeah, we made a lot. We made a lot. 14 states moving on election integrity measures. This is good. What's the next level conversation in addition to continuing to and pour our state legislatures to mind the store, and especially in states where nothing has changed, to work on election integrity measures, to make sure that you have things like, oh, I don't know, voter ID, which is overwhelmingly popular among every political persuasion, every ethnicity, every age group, just not elected Democrats. We should have things like voter ID everywhere. Ballot harvesting should not have a place in this country. It's absurd that a random third-party person should be able to pick up somebody else's ballot and have it officially presented for them. That, that is the height of absurdity. It is absurd to have drop boxes that nobody watches. Just sit there. Anything could happen with them. It's absurd to just mail ballots to every single person in a state. Right? I mean, so we should have, at a minimum, laws in place in every state that help guard against those types of eventualities. Right? So if your state has, hasn't moved in that direction, you need to be working on it. But the next level conversation, this is something that I'm working on locally on my end, getting after these prosecutors, exposing them, putting the heat on them, naming them by name, bringing up these cases, asking these questions that your news media otherwise won't present. Because as soon as the news gets out there, they have to do something with it. So this needs to be another next-level piece of election integrity we're minding the store on and something we need to be active with. And again, if you're going, hold on, where do I get started again? The Public Interest Legal Foundation has done remarkable reporting on this. And in particular... Jay Christian Adams, who has been spearheading the effort. Uh, so that is a great place to get started. I'm Brian Mudd, and for the great one. Mud Lovin. Construction of the studded border wall, which has led to you know, huge amounts of illegals, huge amounts of drugs flowing across our border, huge amounts of COVID flowing across our border. Uh, he, he cut off the Keystone Pipeline. Gas prices have, have doubled. Uh, inflation is on the rise. There's a labor shortage. Yeah, other than that, he's done a pretty good job as president so far this year. What do you say? That's uh, Representative James Comer on why Biden's approval is as poor as it is at this point. By the way, did have breaking news within the last hour that was sad. The legendary John Madden, Hall of Fame Raiders coach, and a guy who in the broadcast booth was often more entertaining than the games that he was calling. Yeah, he passed away at 85 and uh, you know, truly one of a kind. Still, I mean, they, they still make the Madden video games, for that matter, right? I mean, it just gives you an idea of what an icon he's been. What, 30 years or something making those, those Madden uh, NFL games, but... Uh, Anyway, yeah, John Madden uh, passed away at 85. Brian Mudd in for the great great one, Mark Levin. And, okay, so I was talking about the next level election integrity questions. And un- 
prosecuted, but referred voter fraud cases that are pervasive across the country. Something that we need to get more informed about, something that we need to help expose, something that we need to question local prosecutors on. And again, the Public Interest Legal Foundation leading the charge. This after we made a a good deal of, of progress in election integrity throughout the course of this year. The other issue this time a year ago that I was really focusing on have been for a long time. It's something certainly the great one himself has, has talked about at length, education. You know, the, the real problem, the reason why even when Republicans, for example, and even when they're, you, you've got good conservative leadership within the Republican ranks, the reason why things have, it, it's only slowed the eventual swing in this country that we've seen over time is because it's just been about winning elections. It hasn't been about something bigger. And that's because we've been losing younger generations in the classroom for decades without realizing it. You take a look at the average turnout in local-only elections. It's often 20% across the country. A lot of people would take a look at school board races and not have a clue who the candidates were. Most not vote in the first place. Or maybe you pay attention at the point where you are going to to have an election and you go, I don't like any of these candidates. And that's part of the problem. So one thing that's been great this year, and it, we, it turned out to be more successful than I could have imagined, how much attention has been paid to what's happening in our schools. The awakening that's happened at the grassroots level with the emphasis on local school boards and holding the line. We've got to continue to do that. There's another next piece of this conversation as well. A lot of the impetus behind this has focused on critical race theory, right? And remember, the reason CRT and related issues came to the forefront when they did, it was a combination of of greater racial activism surrounding the BLM movement last year, combined with parents actually seeing and hearing what was being taught through online education during the pandemic. But, of course, indoctrination in the classroom is referee. It's not new. It's not new. And critical race theory isn't new either. You know, the actual publication, Critical Race Theory, took place in 2001. Its predecessor was published in 93. And the origins of it go back well even beyond that. The left, like all their, their objectives, they've been playing the long game on this. And the next level of conversation about critical race theory in particular isn't about critical race theory by name, but instead what it's made its way into our schools with. That happens to be the 1619 Project. I'll pick up on that. I'll get to some of your calls as well. Coming up next, Brian Mudd in for the great one. If Mark has banned you from the show, we have a special number you can call to reach him. 877-381-3811. Millions of Americans are looking for tests or at-home tests. There aren't any because he did not plan. Time after time after time, Joe Biden has failed. Why are we surprised by this at this point, America? We shouldn't be. Yeah, no kidding, right? 
for uh, Congressman Byron Donald there. And, uh, yeah, if you are having a hard time finding the COVID test, uh, yeah, well, uh, Biden told her, well, we didn't we didn't plan on it getting this bad. Except weren't they freaking out and saying, oh, it's going to be uh, that it's yeah consistent with everything else they've done. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. And right before the bottom of the hour break, I was touching on the classroom and kind of the next level conversation that we need to have an understanding of as we are putting focus on local school boards and vetting good candidates next year. Perhaps you becoming a candidate if you're the right person. And on that note, something that really needs to start happening in a bigger way. Non-parents getting involved. I know many, many people that are as passionate as any I know that don't have any kids in our schools. Because you care about this country. You worry about what's going on. Not to mention you pay for what happens in the classrooms. Get involved. Get involved. You know, that we need to get, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation as we work to turn the corner in the classroom. But one of the areas that's come up quite a bit recently is the the whole, as we're putting emphasis on critical race theory, too often people are focusing on it by name. And critical race theory itself is a work. It was a published work in 2001. As I referenced, its predecessor was actually published in 93. The roots of it date back even decades before that. There is nothing new about the Marxist critical race theory. What is newer, and it's something you're familiar with, most likely, the 1619 Project, that's actually how it's infiltrated our schools. So just real quick, 1619 Project, which, of course, you had a New York Times writer who brought this about a few years ago. The Pulitzer Center awarded the 1619 Project with the Pulitzer Prize. And this critical race theory-based work was subsequently paid for and shipped to 4,500 schools across the country by the Pulitzer Center. So to be clear, this is where the conversation on critical race theory needs to focus, on the 1619 Project. For example, I've seen people, well-intended, that really care, that go in and ask the question, is critical race theory being taught in this school or in the school system? And there'll be an answer by an official, no, it's not. Well, If critical race theory, the work itself, the published work is not, that could be a truthful answer, right? We need to be wiser than that. The question is, better put, is the 1619 project in the school? And see where that answer takes you. Because often what's happening with the 1619 project being in our schools, paid for by the Pulitzer Center, is that it's being referenced, it's being utilized, even if it's not part of the core curriculum. Okay, so that needs to be the next level and where we're paying attention as well. Also, as a reference last night, approximately 80% of public school teachers are members of a teacher's union, a teacher's union that's fought to keep kids out of the classroom, for school mass mandates, and that have fought for the implementation of racist revisionist history in the form of agendas like CRT. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that 80% are part of the problem by intent. But at least that many literally choose to contribute to being part of the problem. And so that's why it is so important that we're aware of what's happening in the classroom. And 
not just like the other way on, on so many teachers. We need to be wiser about them as well and what their intent may be. Certainly the teachers' unions themselves. All right, let's go to Ivan in my neck of the woods, Miramar, Florida. Ivan, go. Hey, uh, uh, Brian, how you doing? Hey, Brian, real, 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 real quick aside, is I refer to um, Fauci, Biden, and Walensky as the COVIDians in charge. <laughs> hey, listen, <laughs> um, I got, I got t- two points I'd like to have, and I'll be real quick. I like a two point comments I'd like to have you quote, uh, comment on. One is, it, I checked, and it seems like, ironically, federal election law requires the states keep records relating to votes. For, uh, uh, to uh, uh, presidential elections for 22 months. And in this case, it's just just before an opposing party um, can take control of the House and Senate. So my guess is Dems will run out the clock until the records, you know, those records can legally be destroyed. And then um, my, second, my second question is a rhetorical uh, question, is do you suppose uh, Democrats will lie down and concede based on the information that you've given tonight and I know the answer to that, but I just wanted to ask it. And I asked it to say that unless it's a Reagan-type election and until we secure fair and accurate counts in blue states and blue counties and blue and purple states, you know, I have the utmost confidence that Democrats will do whatever it takes to cheat again. And we have, because, we have, because we have very little accountability in Democrat-run states and counties. And so, I'd like for you to come in and tell me what, you, what can change. Yeah, and, and, and you bring up a good point. And, and given where you live, which happens to be Broward County, you know firsthand what can take place. Now, even if you've never been to the state of Florida, you no doubt are aware of Broward County, right? That's because anytime Florida's had election issues, what has been referenced? I mean, there have been times where Many Americans have been more familiar with the names of the election supervisors in Broward County, Florida, than perhaps their own, anywhere USA. And that's because it's had a history of misfeasance. So one of the things that happened in Broward and Palm Beach County in 2018 was we nailed them. We nailed the misfeasance that was taking place. And without getting into details, and one day I might write a book, this is one of what would be many that uh, interesting things that I've I've been involved with and investigated over the course of time. But the bottom line is we nailed red-handed misfeasance taking place with the election supervisors in, in Broward and Palm Beach County. And between outgoing Governor Rick Scott, who is now a senator in the state of Florida, and incoming governor at the time, Ron DeSantis, we ousted both supervisors of elections. Part of the reason that Florida's elections ran so smoothly last year, because we had election supervisors that had been put in place by Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis in Broward and Palm Beach counties. Now, to that end, that's step one. Who's running the elections in your particular county? But the other point is what I was referencing early, earlier based upon the Public Interest Legal Foundation, the new eye-opener to me. We, For all the election fraud that might be out there and everything that has been actually proven in the courts, which is considerable, again, just go to the Heritage Foundation's voter fraud database, there is so much more that has been referred to local prosecutors that is not being followed up on. That's what has to happen. And I do think that if it makes it to the light of day, these prosecutors are going to have to account for it. 
what they've gotten away with to this point is I'm somebody who's been involved in investigating election fraud. And I didn't realize that all these referred cases were going nowhere. So if I'm not finding that, why, obviously, it's easy for everybody to overlook. So I do think if we we bring this to the forefront, if we hold these prosecutors to account for why they would not pursue voter fraud cases that have been referred to them by law enforcement, it might move the needle. And I think that needs to happen. The other, and you happen to be in Florida, well, our our governor, Ron DeSantis, has proposed a state agency on election integrity to where the state could handle these cases should local prosecutors choose not to. So I do think that makes a difference. And as for you know, the, the laws, and you're talking about records being kept for elections. Yeah, as we saw, some of them were being destroyed. I mean, within a matter of weeks after the elections last year. But just as you saw courts like the Pennsylvania Supreme Court not uphold the laws in the state of Pennsylvania, instead allowing the legislature's election laws to be broken in the name of the virus, you had challenges to some of those records that were being destroyed that also were looked the other way in the courts. So that was a huge problem. So we've got to control what we can control in this in this you know, construct. And that certainly is something that with these locally referred cases, we can keep our eye on. Um, otherwise, I'm more optimistic than not because I think we're making progress. Let's go to Bob in Round Top, Texas. Bob, go. Good evening, Brian. Good to talk to you. Likewise. I'd like to make... I'd like to make one comment before I get to my main point. Years ago, I got a fortune cookie that I put on my refrigerator. It says, the great aim of education is not knowledge, but action. And I think that's where we need to be. Knowledge is up to a point, but action is what makes the difference. Well said. And I'd like to say about these judges and the prosecutors that have ideological differences with uh, prosecuting certain cases because... They don't want to follow the law, per se. You know, they were so worried in the past, the prosecutors and judges, about jury nullification. Oh, they were so concerned about jury nullification. Now, what have we got? We've effectively got judge nullification and prosecutor nullification. How hypocritical, how terrible is that? It's just sad. we got to put up with that. Yes, sir. Uh, Great call. Good points. Appreciate you being there. Let's go to Ken in Detroit. Ken, go. I just wanted to quickly give an example of how the proper education can transform uh, individuals who are uh, Marxists, communists, socialists, into free market capitalists. And that's my own life. I graduated high school back in the 80s, and thanks to the education I got in high school, I was definitely a uh, Democrat supporter. I read Karl Marx's uh, Communist Manifesto, and I agreed wow. uh, with what it said. But wow. because of the education I got from uh, conservative uh, news talk radio programs and economics and world history, now I'm a uh, constitutionalist. I believe in free market capitalism. And, uh, yes, education, education, education. And one last thing I learned A nation that follows the economic system embraced by the Democrat Party leads to servitude and slavery underneath the uh, government where a 
country that follows the economic system embraced under the free market system, constitutionalism, the nation is, is a nation of individuals. The rights of the individuals are protected, and the government is the employee of the taxpayers. May God bless you, Ken. I mean, that is... That's a heck of a whirlwind of a, a political life that you've lived, and um, amazing that you, you've you come to where you have. And, you know, the, the truth will set you free. I think you're the ultimate example of that. And, you know, the, the point is, I, I think, a, a perfect one with where I began the show today. And that is, you know, here's Ken talking about, I, I was basically a Marxist, right? I mean, I, I identified with Marxism when I was young. And now, I'm a constitutionalist. I mean, think about how much distance there is. And by the way, if you have questions about all of this, yeah, good opportunity to plug Mark's book. If you don't already have it, the number one hardback, all categories, 2021, American Marxism. Yeah, I mean, the, the Great One's book is absolutely a go-to to understand what we're talking about here. But, I mean, that is the opportunity that's in front of us right now. Because Joe Biden's approval ratings, 29% with voters 18 to 34. We have never in the history of the point age, which began in the 1930s, had a Democrat president who had their lowest approval ratings with the youngest voters. Typically, it works the other way. Typically, those that are youngest are most likely to approve of a Democrat president. Those that are oldest, the least. Okay, so... This is a change. Now, a lot of people are, are quick to point out, and rightly so, that just because they don't like Joe Biden, it doesn't ma- make them conservative. And you're right. <laughs> There's a lot of distance there, right? But if Ken can go from being a Marxist to a constitutionalist with more information, what do you think we're talking about here? This is where I get frustrated because we can't just say, yeah, but they just want things going harder left. No, we just have to present them with good information. Because the actions, they really do speak louder than words. What was happening during the Trump administration? Did we not have the lowest unemployment rate for every minority group in this country's history? Yeah, we sure did before the virus. Did we not have record high wage growth for every minority group in this country? Heck, yes, we did. In fact, the great irony of the Trump presidency before the virus is literally the only demographic that adjusted for inflation wasn't experiencing a record best white men. White men. Everybody else doing better on a relative basis than had ever happened in American history. What this country is all about. It's that type of action That can help show people the difference in policy. All these broken promises, rather than record low unemployment rates, record high wage growth and prosperity, we have record high prices. And if you don't get injected with whatever the hell we say you get injected with, you get fired. So screw you and your family as you're starting out in your career. Don't just go, yeah, but they just want more left. Well, if you give up on them, they will. But this is an opportunity, I think, generational opportunity. Brian Mudd, 
in for the great one. Mark Lovin. inflation and food prices will be 5% higher in the first half of the year. Let's dig into this. Mondelez International says its cookies, candies, and other products will rise 6 to 7%. Uh-oh, Oreo. Kraft Heinz will raise prices across the board with some as high as 20%. General Mills, Campbell Soup, they're also raising prices starting next month. But I mean, I don't know about you. Every single day, I wake up and go... Yeah, but thank God, no more Trump tweets, right? I mean, that just makes everything so worth it, doesn't it? Ah, yeah, give me some more of that sweet Biden action. Dumbasses. Yeah, elections have consequences. We've certainly lived a year realizing that. But rather than just accepting defeat and going, well, this country is screwed, we've started doing something about it. We've made a lot of progress in a lot of states on election integrity. It's outlined in tonight's show. We have a ways to go and next level kind of conversations that need to take place. Ditto in the classroom. But now is not the time to get depressed unless you are having to pay for gas. It is the time to put your foot on the gas, vet candidates, get engaged, and make a difference. We really can make 2022 a, a turning point in this country's history. And I intend to do my part. Hope you do as well. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. Happy New Year. <laughs> 